I think that at a macro level, if we want Bitcoin to go in the direction where most people are taking advantage of the self-sovereignty aspects that are available, then we need to continue to push the convenience forward so that you know it's easier and easier for people to feel confident that they can manage their own keys. This episode of Empire, I sat down with Jameson Lopp, who is the co-founder and CTO of Casa. Uh, most folks know Jameson for his uh, pretty crazy story of getting swatted. Uh, for those who don't know what that means, the at- SWAT team uh, literally showed up in his neighborhood and shut down the entire neighborhood. We got into that story and so much more on this episode. It was a long episode. I think you'll enjoy the entire thing. Jameson is probably the most well-known security and privacy uh, expert in the space, but we talked about so much more, including why he holds such strong beliefs around this, uh, what financial sovereignty really means, why you uh, should care about your privacy and your security, uh, even when it comes with the trade-off of convenience. So uh, I, this was, I loved this episode. I, I think you'll really enjoy it as well. Um, after you listen, stick around. Uh, let me know what you think of this episode. Shoot me a message on Twitter. Uh, and yeah, hope you enjoy the episode. I'll see you on the other side. This episode is brought to you by Luke Attacks and Exodus. Stay tuned for more info. Jameson, uh, thank you so much for joining. I, uh, I sent out a tweet right before this saying I'm interviewing the legendary Lop uh, later today. And it's gotten uh, quite, quite the excitement. So you've, you've built quite an audience, my friend. Yeah, I don't really know how it happened um, because I've really been tweeting about whatever interests me for 11 years now. And even the first few years I was tweeting after I got hooked on to Bitcoin, basically nobody paid attention to me. So uh, it's like like the saying, you know, you, you, you can become an overnight success after like 10 years of hard work. <laughs> yeah, we're seeing that right now with Beeple, right? Beeple's putting out art yep. every day for 15 years and now he's getting 69 million for it. When did you, uh, when did you start tweeting and when did you actually get this following? Uh, well, I mean, I, I know I joined Twitter in 2009. I, I started getting interested in and tweeting about Bitcoin in 2012. And interestingly enough, my first Bitcoin tweet was actually about the first halving. Like that was the first time I felt like something interesting has happened in Bitcoin. It's worth tweeting about. And at the time, I think... I had maybe a couple hundred followers and so I got like no retweets, no likes, but I've, I've referenced it a few times since then. And now, you know, all the stats are jacked up on it because people have been wanting to like reference my 10 year old tweet about the first having. That's amazing. Um, we're going to talk a ton about just private key management and CASA and your story and all of that kind of fun stuff that people requested and people wanted us to talk about. But I actually thought we could start somewhere different outside of crypto. Um, mm-hmm. you spend your early days in email marketing kind of, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, just kind of stri- stripping away people's privacy from what I know about email marketing. What are, yep. can you just talk about these days? And really what I'm curious about is if you could just share kind of your knowledge of like, how did that teach you about the trails of data that everybody's leaving behind? Right. So, um, I mean, I spent the first 10 years of my career working at the same startup, though I changed jobs, I would say, every 18 months as that startup grew from 
15 employees to 300 employees from, you know, million dollar a year to tens of millions of dollar a year uh, business. And it was actually kind of fortuitous at the time when I got out of school was 2007, 2008, like the major economic correction was occurring and a lot of people were having a tough time. It was actually a boon uh, for the company that I joined, which was fairly random for me because I didn't care about email marketing. I was just looking for you know some sort of computer science related uh, software engineering job. But what happened was all of these big companies, their marketing budgets got slashed so they took that money out of more traditional print and billboard and radio marketing, which is very hard to track the ROI on, and instead started putting it into internet and uh, email marketing because all of a sudden you know exactly how much you're spending on marketing and you can see how much money you're making from the marketing because you're tracking who's clicking on stuff and then who's going through the whole process of then buying something. And so what this came down to over the years is wanting greater and greater sophistication and controls over uh, predictive analytics and being able to say, okay, uh, we've done all of these different campaigns in the past and our marketing manager has tried all of these different things. Now, what can we learn from it in order to uh, tweak our campaigns in the future so that more people buy more stuff? And so... While you know none of this stuff interested me, like from the ideological standpoint, like I don't care who sells what to whatever, um, it fell upon me to use whatever tools were available to make these type of of analytics and like predictive. Uh, associative features possible. So like when we first started out, we were just using regular old MySQL database. Uh, that's fine for most things, but you get to a point where you're working with petabytes and petabytes of data. If you want to be able to manipulate that stuff in real time, you've got to use more cutting edge uh, stuff. So that's where we start getting into the whole non-relational database, cloud computing, uh, Google scale type um, cluster-based approach. It would get to the point where, you know, we were even, you know, looking at things like, we know this person is usually in this time zone and they open their emails in a cluster around this hours in the day. And so we want to be at the top of their inbox when they're, they're like waking up or whenever they're usually looking at their email. And so we're going to, we want to send it, you know, just a few minutes right before then. And so, I mean, you can, you can become sort of infinitely complex with this type of stuff and it's all in the pursuit of uh, making another buck, right? So it's all financially motivated. The, um, the, the system is, is in place there for people to uh, devote as much as, you know, 99 cents per dollar of expected revenue coming back. Because if you're making a penny on any of these things that you're putting a lot of effort into, then you just multiply that by millions of automated actions. And you can see how, you know, you can basically create new revenue streams out of thin air uh, from enough... Uh, behavioral science as it were it's, it seems it seems a bit funny doesn't it that the world's some of the world's smartest people are you know in silicon valley working on uh making better 
customer relationship management platforms and and optimizing the conversion rate to go from five percent on email marketing to five point one. Well, yeah, I mean it's and it's even I mean it's worse than that. Of like, what are the the smartest people working on these days? At least if it if it comes down to. Uh, rational, financially motivated people who want to maximize their income, then I would say some of the smartest people are working on Wall Street or basically working at some sort of trading desk trying to eke fractions of a penny out of trades that happen, you know, millions of times a day, uh, you know, playing zero-sum games that don't benefit society, they just benefit you know, a small number of players that have the sophistication to find you know, various arbitrage or, or other uh, efficiency gains. Um, or, you know, a really sad thing uh, for me ideologically is, you know, a lot of the smartest mathematicians, you know where they end up working? The NSA. Uh, the NSA is like one of the biggest hires of, of high-level mathematicians in the country. And I, I mean, I... Obviously, we don't know everything that they're doing, but I suspect that there's probably more society-friendly type of things that they could be building rather than uh, intelligence-based tools. Yeah, yeah. the smartest mathematicians, I feel like right now, are going to one of three places. They're going to trading, they're going to hedge funds, right? They're going to the NSA, or they're going and working on machine learning algorithms at places like Facebook, which mm -hmm. none, <laughs> all three of those uh, don't seem like you know, uh, I don't know, ideologically, uh, too amazing of a place, at least for, at least for me personally. But I mean, what, what happened with you? Like when you were at this email marketing firm, I mean, I, a lot of people who are going to be listening to this know you as the kind of very ideologically grounded in privacy and security. Did Bitcoin cause that for you or, and create that, or did you already have that kind of mindset back then? I would say it definitely was a catalyst. Um, I, w I was interested in privacy and security you know, tangentially, but I was not a hard uh, you know, practice what you preach type of advocate of these things. I, I cared about, I th think, privacy more from the aspect of not wanting government surveillance. Uh, I wasn't as... Uh, against, I guess, a lot of the, the corporate uh, for-profit surveillance stuff. Obviously, I was steeped in it. Um, it, uh, you know, it did affect my own behavior in the sense that I knew how not only our system, but a lot of the other similar systems worked. So, you know, obviously I was running everything with tons of ad blockers and uh, I knew not to click on things in emails because they were inevitably going to get tracked. Um, and uh, even to this day, I'm very studious about any time I get an unsolicited email, I immediately unsubscribe or, or mark it as spam, depending on like what options are available there. But um, it was, I would say, the biggest incentive for me to improve my privacy and security, direct results of Bitcoin, uh, both uh, from having to you know, secure that data itself and then from events happening later on that showed me that my privacy was terrible and I needed to, to fix it. But um, we had, you know, security incidents and I think anyone who runs any type of online company that has some sort of 
cyber infrastructure is going to have to deal with it because you're basically you're you're running a, a business that has a front door that anybody can come knock on and so the security incidents that we had while I was at the email marketing company were generally around people wanting to get in and steal um, data, you know, steal email lists, steal uh, personally identifiable information. Uh, even though we told our clients you should not be storing any sensitive personal information in our system, we couldn't stop them. So there were plenty of times when we found clients that were storing things like credit cards or social security numbers. I mean, anything you can imagine, even though we were we never made any claims about being a high security system, uh, as soon as you, you know, open up an API that you allow people to put arbitrary data into, they're gonna use it for the dumbest things because it makes sense to them. And so, um, you know, data has value. Uh, so it, it was, you know, it was, it was a valuable asset in its own in that, you know, if someone can uh, steal, you know, millions of, uh, of contact information, more detail about them that they have, the more valuable it is. You can always go sell that on the black market if you don't want to use it yourself for spamming or whatever. So what does that actually mean for those who don't know, including myself? I've never sold data on the black market. How does that work? Um, I mean, it's you know, essentially you, you go to a, a website, usually it's going to be on uh, the dark net as it's known, aka uh, you know, Tor based networks that provide much stronger uh, privacy features for the people that are accessing and, and using these sites. And a lot of them are just simple forums. Uh, it's, it's almost analogous to like over the counter trading type stuff where you say, hey, I've got this information. You will probably provide a small snippet of the dump just sort of to prove its legitimacy. And then you say, you know, this is how much I want for it. And, uh, you know, before Bitcoin, I guess you, you would probably have to deal in either like mailing physical cash or using some sort of uh, prepaid debit cards or something. Uh, or you could, of course, if you're in the, the carding industry, you could just swap um, people's credit card numbers uh, and then get into sophisticated laundering schemes around that. But, uh, you know, today you can just say, hey, I want, you know, half a Bitcoin for these 10 million contacts that are associated with this stuff and that, you know, you could probably use to either scam them or steal their identities or who knows what. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break from the show. Talk about two sponsors. You guys have heard them on the last two episodes. It's uh, Luca Tax and Exodus. I wanted to re-record both of the ads, though. Uh, just because they're kind of two, one story and one update from one of the companies. So I just wanted to fill you guys in. The first one is Luca Tax. Luca, just a, I mean, it's tax season right now, as some of you guys probably know. Taxes are so damn complicated that the IRS pushed back the deadline another month. So you guys, including me, could figure out our taxes. Uh, for folks in crypto, you guys know that crypto taxes can be an absolute nightmare. Fun little story, I tried having my accountant, this guy Josue, figure out how to do my taxes and it was an absolute nightmare because of the crypto, right? All of us, a lot of us at least have crypto held on a few different platforms. I've got crypto on like Exodus, a few other places. And you know, you've got to deal with FIFO, you've got to deal with LIFO, there are exchanges, there are custodians, there are wallets. And what Luca Tax basically uh, was able to do was, first off, super cheap, right? 
I had Josue go over to uh, tax.luca.tech forward slash empire, which is my URL. I get hooked up if you guys go over there and create an account. So do that. But I had Josue head over to Luca and it just made it super easy for him to do my taxes. So you can have your accountant plug into Luca. You can do it yourself. Um, but yeah, I highly recommend Luca if you guys are trying to do your crypto taxes this year. Tax.luca.tech forward slash empire. All right, head on over. All right, a lot of you know, the second partner for the show is Exodus. I, about 20 or 30 people hit me up last time, said, is Exodus legit? Who is Exodus? How do you hear about Exodus? So I want to share a little background on that story. Basically Exodus, a lot of people don't know them. They've been around since you know, 2015. They've over a hundred employees. They've raised a boatload of money, which we'll talk about in a second. And they're one of the best kept secrets in the space. Hardcore Bitcoiners, people who have been around since like 2012, 2013, love Exodus because they basically let you manage your private keys, um, which is really sought after. If, if anyone's heard of, you know, not your keys, not your crypto, Exodus allows you to basically do this. They got super low fees when you're buying Bitcoin, You've got a built-in exchange. Uh, they let you plug into DeFi really easily. So they're an amazing wallet. When I first heard about Exodus, actually, our sales team had brought it to me and said, do you want to work with this company? I hit up Peter McCormick because I knew that they, they advertised with Pete. Pete said, yeah, they're super legit. I do a lot of my business banking with them. He basically gave his stamp of approval. I checked out the product, gorgeous UI, UX, really good security. So I'd really recommend it. They just raised $59 million in four days. Super impressive. So they're really well capitalized. And yeah, I'd recommend checking out Exodus. You can find them at exodus.com forward slash empire. All right. Let me know what you think. So we're going to get into the kind of crypto and, and you know the, the Bitcoin rabbit hole in a second. But if I'm a listener who doesn't have much Bitcoin and I'm kind of like, I understand that folks in Bitcoin, not your keys, not your crypto, like, you, you know, they take privacy and security very seriously because it's a bearer asset. What about if I don't own any Bitcoin? Like, why should I care about data? You're really talking about a, a trade-off between privacy and convenience, right? That's what all these things are. Um, whether you're talking about security or privacy, and I argue that security and privacy are kind of two sides the same coin. Um, I see privacy as kind of the outer layer of security. You know, if you can prevent someone from learning about you in the first place, then they can't attack you. Uh, and then the, the, the next layer is the actual security of, okay, someone is targeting you. They, they're trying to attack you. What do you have as safeguards in place that will slow down and hopefully completely stop the attack? Um, once we start talking about threat models, either for privacy or security. Uh, there's no such thing as you know, perfect privacy or perfect security. There's only the question of how much effort, how what level of resources is going to be required by an attacker to pierce through whatever protections you have set up. So, you know, ultimately, or at least the ultimate attacker is the nation state attacker. Uh, generally, people uh, do not have that in their threat model. Um, pretty much any privacy or security guides, uh, unless you're just talking about straight up like communications security, which is totally possible to, uh, to set up as being nation state attacker resistant. If we're talking about anything like physical uh, privacy or physical security related, you probably do not have enough resources to defend against uh, uh, at least a uh, nation state that you're physically residing in that may have a nearly unlimited level of resources that they would be willing to use against you. Hmm. So, so why should, I mean, why should the average person care? 
Um, because uh, what is it? Uh, uh, an ounce of effort or an ounce of prevention is worth a, a, a pound of uh, cure is that um, even if you don't use any of the Bitcoin or crypto related stuff, like I was saying before, data is valuable. Um, you don't want to get your identity stolen, for example. So just making it more difficult for your, your, your credit card or your bank account or other important aspects of your identity to get stolen and sold and traded, um, you know, that can save you innumerable hours of work trying to uh, clean up after the fact. And, you know, I've, I've heard stories of people who've had to spend years before they were able to like clean up their credit after an incident. Yeah. Yeah. That actually happened to uh, a family member of mine. They got their kind of credit taken over and it took them like two, two or three years to get that back. So, yeah. Cause I mean, usually you don't even notice for six months to a year. That's it's exactly like what people happened. are pulling their credit reports every month. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. So let's, um, a lot of people know your story, but I think it would be helpful to just um, recap it. You clearly care about this stuff and for good reason, right? Because you have one of the crazier stories that I've heard about a SWAT team showing up to your door. So let's let's take a you know, little journey through history. Can you share what happened here? Yeah, uh, and I have all of the details in a, a long blog post that I wrote a few years ago. But the short version is that... Some random person, you know, once my my Twitter following had grown large enough, um, I encountered the problem that anyone with a large audience eventually encounters just due to the law, law of large numbers is there's going to be some deranged individuals out there who are willing to do things that other people are not. And so eventually uh, I had an incident where someone who was sophisticated enough to cover his uh, tracks. He uh, basically used some throwaway uh, services to place a phone call to my local police department and then claim he was me, give them my home address and claim that uh, I had killed people and was holding uh, someone else hostage and I had explosives in the house and, you know, basically uh, touch all of the like red flags that, you know, is going to result in the highest level of, uh, of threat and therefore uh, police response. And so naturally the police, uh, even though they were suspicious of this for several reasons, because the call did not come into the local 911 number, came into a non-emergency number and got transferred, which is what all of these uh, swatter attackers have to do. Um, and because they traced the call out of state, they also suspected it wasn't me. I, they were still probably due to department protocol. Uh, they, they had to come in and shut down my entire neighborhood, block it all off and figure out whether or not the threat was credible. So um, it it was really weird how it worked out for me at the time because I was actually not in my house. Uh, I, I was actually at the gym and I was driving back to my house and I encountered the police blockade and they wouldn't let me into my own neighborhood. And it took me a while of sitting outside uh, the the neighborhood to eventually figure out that they were there for me 
<laughs> and and at that point, uh, I you know I got hooked up with the uh, captain or the lieutenant who was like in uh, in charge of the operation and went up into their mobile command center and I was like. Sorry about all of this. I I was like, I already know what happened. And I, I can, because, you know, I've heard of these things happening before in this space. And they were, and they offered to, to you know, search my house. And I was like, no, no, I think I'm good. I, I, I'm feeling pretty safe. Uh, and, and so, how did you, you know, uh, it, how did you figure out that, that they were after uh, you? Did you did you walk up and they you said what's going on here and they said we're looking for this guy Jameson and you said I am Jameson. <laughs> well, they didn't say my name, but but you know they said we have a possibly armed individual and I was like okay where and then they were like on this street and I'm like at this address and they're like yeah I'm like hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, wait, so I so can you explain that though, Jameson? Like why does so I get that this person's trying to screw with you and swatting and i've heard it's happened to some other folks in, in the bitcoin space as well but why does that then give this person access to your bitcoin or are they just screwing with you yeah it doesn't give them access to my bitcoin it's a form of extortion because uh shortly after the police had packed up and left i sent out a tweet that was basically jeering at the attacker saying you know you're gonna have to do better than that and um, and within an hour or two after I sent the jeering tweet, I got a direct call to my phone um, that I did not answer. I let it go to voicemail. I actually saved the voicemail. It's on the blog post that I eventually wrote. Um, and it was basically another threat saying, uh, you know, it was like, it was asking. So in both the 911 call, he mentioned something about like around $50,000 ransom. And then once again, in the call to my voicemail, he, he demanded like $50,000 worth of Bitcoin. Otherwise, he was going to do something worse. And of course, nothing ever happened after that, because whoever did it is you know, probably living in his mom's basement and making most of his money by doing various uh, cyber crimes. Hmm. It's a crazy story. So so. And just so everyone knows, you can find this article and a whole bunch of other articles. At, it's a lop.net, I think it is. I've mm -hmm. sent your website to probably over 100 people at this point who are trying to learn about Bitcoin. So if anyone's just getting into the space or if you've been in the space for a while, you should go to uh, lop.net. Um, let's see, Jameson, what, so what happens after this? You're, I mean, I'm assuming, I know you're a, uh, you know, gun holding, uh, gun wielding, you know, kind of, uh, you understand security better than most, but I'm assuming you got freaked out, right? Yeah. Uh, well also I remember when I was, when I was in the, uh, the SWAT mobile headquarters and they offered to search my house or to clear my house <laughs> to make sure it was safe. I actually remembered that just the day or two prior, I had gone to the shooting range and I still had like a dozen guns just laying out in my living room that I <laughs> needed to clean after having taken them to the range. And I was like, oh shit, I definitely don't want to get into a situation where they're rolling up and, you know, I'm sure they could come up with a reason to like confiscate my guns or, you know, say something was wrong. And so, um, yeah, I mean, in general, I. I just I started thinking about you know what is my threat model um, and I you know I went into a lot more detail in my blog post about this but 
I approached it from a you know, security analysis perspective of you know, what has actually happened here. Well, you know, due to a combination of multiple events and changes in technology, but uh, lack of changes in government and law enforcement protocols, we're in a situation now where someone with a modicum of sophistication can, for probably less than $10, uh, create an anonymous phone call that then has the right trigger words, the right information, and can result in a disproportionate, you know, asymmetric level of response. Uh, you know, the level of resources that got deployed in my neighborhood was I would estimate on the order of tens of thousands to maybe even $100,000 worth of resource. I mean, we're talking about dozens of officers, you know, the SWAT team, um, innumerable people in my community of 400 houses that were inconvenienced in one way or another. I mean, this just had a huge impact if we assume that the attacker probably only had to spend 10, 20, 30 dollars actually, you know, setting up the the technical pieces of the puzzle required to pull this off. And and so how do you protect against that? Well, you know, there is no security level that I can implement that will keep a SWAT team away from my property if they know the address and they're targeting it. So you have to go one layer out. We need a level of privacy so that no one can feed the right information to your local law enforcement and trigger a response like this. And I went back and forth on some of the different options. I spoke to a lot of attorneys. Um, you know, we discussed things like, in some cases, I know that people have have just gone the "I'm going to trust law enforcement" route, and they go to their local law enforcement and they say, "Look, this is me. This is my situation. I'm at high risk of being swatted. Please put me on a special list so that you like." call me if you think you know call this number if you think that uh i'm like crazy and gonna blow people up but i don't trust law enforcement to you know follow an arbitrary whitelist exception like that like i don't trust government i don't trust bureaucracy i can only imagine the number of ways that someone could screw that up and 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 that being a single point of failure that ends up not protecting me so I chose not to go the, um, you know, try to work with law enforcement route on all of this. And instead I said, okay, I'm going to use the other legal tools at my disposal to protect my privacy. And it became apparent very quickly that, you know, I'd been living in the same house for 10 years. I had given my address to hundreds, if not thousands of different merchants and online services. And I knew that my name and address were associated in more databases scattered across the internet than I could possibly count. So there's no way I was gonna clean all of that up. Uh, that meant the only option was to burn it all down and start all over. And so that's what I ended up doing. It took me almost a year. It cost me, I wanna say 30 plus thousand dollars in, in legal fees. And of course I had to sell all of my publicly registered possessions and purchase new things that were n no longer owned by me, 
but rather owned by other legal entities that cannot be directly uh, tied to me. So um, this you know, is the extreme level of privacy that it takes a lot of dedication, uh, a lot of resources. Really no one other than celebrities should ever have to do stuff like this. Um, and, and I don't consider myself a celebrity. Like I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not like big headed rather. It's that I understand that now in the communications age, it's, it's another type of asymmetry that can happen where uh, everyone knows about viral effects. Everyone is well aware that due to social media, someone who's a nobody can do one interesting, weird, creepy, whatever th thing. And that can go viral and that can result in them going from having a few hundred people paying attention to them, which is like their Dunbar number of friends and, and personal network that they're associated with, to having tens of millions of people paying attention to them the very next day. Uh, you know, this, once again, is an extreme scenario. It's not gonna happen to the vast majority of people, but you never know if you might win that lottery. And so the question comes down to, you know, do you think uh, it is worth the time, the effort, the resources for you to protect yourself against that particular edge case because you might win the lottery in a number of different ways. I so that so crazy that you mentioned this. I uh, yesterday was the one year anniversary of this tweet I sent out about coronavirus when it was just kicking off in early March, and the tweet went completely viral, got like 300,000 likes, 40 million people have viewed it. It was linked to in like CNN and all this shit. And I was, you know, I was ecstatic. I was like, I was getting all these followers and I was like, this is incredible. I went from like yeah. 5,000 followers to 20. And then my email starts to get, I start to get pinged. People are hacking into my email. People are trying to break into my various bank accounts, crypto accounts, every social media account. Uh, and, it, and it was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. And that's actually, Time to that burn actually, it all down. That's actually when one of my one of my friends I was I was kind of complaining about this, and he sent me your article, and he's like, "You got to read ah. Jameson's stuff." Um, so I thank you for that. Um, let so one one more note on this burn it all down thing, and then we can start getting into uh, Bitcoin a little bit, Jameson. When you burned it all down, how far did you go? Like, does your do your parents and friends know where you live? Do you use your same name? Or like how far are we talking? Yeah. Here? Yeah. Um, so I really, you know, part of this of course was a direct response to a credible threat uh, that I considered to be ongoing, but it was also somewhat of an experiment that I wanted to see how far I could take it. So, you know, I would say like the number of people who know like the actual address of my location at any given time is probably like five. Um, the vast majority of people and my, my family, friends, whatever, do not know my actual address. Um, you know, even pretty much everybody in my family, um, they have mailing addresses uh they don't have like my actual you know I, if i receive mail in my name at my location then i know i've screwed up like that <laughs> um but yeah uh 
I also don't use my real name with like the actual people that I encounter in day-to-day life. You know, I have a couple different pseudonyms that I use for different things. I learned very quickly not to come up with a new pseudonym for every person that I met because that was untenable to keep track of. Um, but yeah, um, I'm also lucky that I'm not a celebrity. I think a lot of people who follow me just kind of assume that I must get recognized all the time. I've only ever gotten recognized once uh, in real life, like outside of a Bitcoin conference. And that was in, uh, well, I guess it was in Napa Valley. So, you know, it was near Silicon Valley. So uh, I kind of consider that to be like, okay, nerd, nerd world. Um, otherwise, uh, I just try to blend in and uh, not do anything too bitcoiny uh when i'm you know hanging out with other people so do you do you have friends in your town who call you by another name yeah fascinating do you get to pick how how did you pick the name are you like are you like dave or tom or are you are you did you pick some (laughs) crazy (laughs) crazy name no i mean uh you know when you're when you're picking a pseudonym it should be something that you know is average but not too average so obviously you don't want to go with like john doe but i mean something along those lines that that it matches your uh ethnicity your geographic location your gender you know it's uh you just you don't want to be too memorable yeah what are um what are some for i've heard you mention a book a few times that you might recommend here but my question is like so so on one end of the spectrum you have what you did, which is, I don't think anyone's going to replicate who's listening to this podcast, I'll be honest with you. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have, oh, there's the book for people who are watching on YouTube. You've got Extreme Privacy, What It Takes to Disappear. Yeah, this is the book that I wish had existed when I undertook a lot of these efforts. And and every time a new edition comes out, I learn a lot. So, um, you know, Michael Bazell uh, is one of the premier privacy experts hmm. and he's always he's also got a podcast so if you're into that interesting and i think he out. also has a service where you can pay him like six figures and he'll take you off the grid yeah yeah uh i suspect that you know he primarily deals with actual celebrity clients who um would rather spend a few hundred thousand dollars than have to put in all of the time that i did to like figure these things out myself yeah. and like instead uh, that was I do kind of, I mean, I like the idea of, of just paying someone like him to do it all because the one thing that I did have problems with, even though I spent tens of thousands of dollars uh, with attorneys and bankers and stuff, is that they screwed up multiple times. And, you know, I would start off at the very beginning. I gave them the whole spiel. I'm like, this is why we're doing this. This is why I need this privacy. I'm not a criminal who is trying to like hide any sort of ill-gotten activities or gains or whatever. Um, And so they understood, but they were just so not used to it that there were multiple times that they would just be following a process and data would leak. And so, you like know, they, unless they, you're they put your address on some on some piece of paper by accident because they're a lawyer and they're used. Yeah, to it would go into some database, and then I would get like a birthday card in the mail to my actual address, and I'm like, "What the hell is this, people? Like this, my name is not even supposed to be associated with this address." 
So, uh, you know, from that standpoint, using a privacy expert like Michael Bazell for him to act as a proxy, um, my understanding is like the way that he does it is like he doesn't even tell the other service providers, you know, what the name of his client is. And that's, that's like, that's the only way that you can be a hundred percent about any of this. And mm -hmm. so my problem is that, you know, the banker and the attorney, they knew who I was because they were acting as my direct proxies. So, you know, whoever is acting as your proxy for a certain thing has to be airtight. And there, there's always going to be some level of trust there, unfortunately. Yeah. We've talked a lot about data privacy and just security in general. Um, but one thing I think that you're big on as well is just financial sovereignty. And mm -hmm. I think this is, could be a good segue into Bitcoin. What does, you know, what does Bitcoin mean to you in relation to all of this self-sovereignty and privacy and security? Well, um, it's, it's crude, but I think the best way that I've been able to describe Bitcoin is it's fuck you money. Um, that sums up so much of self-sovereignty of uh, the, the, the way that I measure sovereignty, um, because this can be applied to many different aspects of, of your life. It's who can you tell to go fuck themselves? And, and you can only tell someone to go fuck themselves if they can't really do anything to harm you. So, you know, you're not going to lose anything by severing that relationship. So th this is very hard to do when you're working with service providers that you're entrusting with very important things. So take a bank, for example. Uh, you know, if, if you tell your bank, you know, uh, I'm not going to follow whatever your rules are. I'm not going to submit to, you know, all this stupid paperwork. Then they'll tell you, OK, uh, we're going to close your account now. Goodbye. Um, you know, if you're going to tell like your grocery store or your other, you know, food provider, you know, I'm not going to follow by whatever rules you want, then they're going to say, okay, we don't have to sell you any food. So, you know, if you, if you want to be, uh, you know, self-sovereign from a, a food, um, production standpoint, then you better have you know, your own farm, your own sustainable uh, setup in that term. You know, same thing for energy provider. There's so many different aspects of our lives that we're entrusting to third parties because this is how society has organized itself and uh, capitalism has found efficiencies. And that, of course, is through um, specialization. And so instead of Instead of us being like a mountain man who has to spend 90% of our day working on survival, you know, and basically fulfilling the, the most basic level of the, was it Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, we can instead work our way up that ladder by only focusing on tasks that are, uh, you know, higher output, they're, they're more economically efficient. And so we let other people specialize on these more base tasks where they can find more efficiencies there. But in general, you know, the issue with creating more efficiencies in the system is efficiencies almost always create fragility. And it's the fragility that we're talking about uh, being um, worried about when we talk about sovereignty, whether that's financial sovereignty, uh, economic sovereignty, food sovereignty, energy sovereignty, whatever. Uh, it's it's trying to reverse that trend back into the other direction where hopefully we can use some various aspects of technology so that we can have our cake and eat it too. You know, so that we can 
not rely upon third parties, but also not have to spend 90% of our days uh, focused on boring, mundane stuff because you know, humans are creative creatures. Uh, we want to be doing new, interesting things that are challenging. Yeah. I take it you're a fan of the sovereign individual. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it was you know, quite prescient, and uh, I wish I had read it long before. Um, you know, I didn't read it until after I got into Bitcoin, but if I had read it before, then perhaps I would have joined up even earlier. Companies that become large enough, powerful enough, resourceful enough are already able to and are taking advantage of a lot of the things that the sovereign individual thesis uh, has, you know, around essentially negotiating with governments for preferential treatment or taxation or or what have you. And, you know, the sovereign individual thesis is just kind of like, well, what happens if we take that all the way to the extreme and each individual is at the level where they can negotiate uh, for favorable conditions from different governments? Now, that, uh, I believe, is still going to be relegated to sort of the billionaire status level people. But hopefully, should things continue along the same track, it will continue to ratchet down, ratchet down, ratchet down. Uh, and become more available to a larger portion of the population. Hmm. Let me ask your take on this then. Um, right now, I think it's 4% of all Bitcoin supply is held in corporate treasuries. You would know that stat better than me. That number might have changed. I think it's around six, but you know, it's probably even higher than that. That's like the only, that's just the ones that we know about. Yeah. So like, so, okay. So you've got that. You've also have a small, a very small number of custodians hold the private keys to most of the Bitcoin, right? This is pretty antithetical to Bitcoin and just this sovereign individual thesis. What, what's your take on this? Is it, is it good because more and more companies are buying Bitcoin and Bitcoin's getting adopted more or is it, or is it bad or it's a little bit of both? I wouldn't go as far as to say it's antithetical to Bitcoin. Um, because there's actually precedent going all the way back to 2009 where Hal Finney uh, was postulating on some possible ways that Bitcoin could scale. And one of those ways was that the majority of Bitcoin would be held by banks and that you know uh, it would really be more of a reserve asset and there would still be uh, sort of banks with their own private ledgers that are getting updated uh, behind the scenes. Now, obviously, that is not the way that a lot of us want to see it go. Um, it's kind of been going that way, at least uh, from the institutional standpoint. Uh, I think what it's not helped by some of the existing regulations that require uh, for uh, large funds, like really anyone who is managing, I think, more than a couple hundred million dollars of other people's money has various regular regulatory requirements where they have to use a quote unquote qualified custodian and uh, that that's what ends up pushing them to you know one of these large custodial providers um, you know hopefully that will change at some point um, I, I'm not the legal expert, though. I'm not sure you know, if anything is underway uh, regarding that. Uh, there's also just the issue of 
even for like the large providers or even the high net worth individuals who uh, they're not legally required to use a custodian due to the nature of Bitcoin, how new and confusing and complicated it can be. A lot of them probably feel safer just once again, letting a, a third party with the expertise uh, and the um, um, efficiency, the the I would say focus on all of the minutia. Uh, you know, someone who lives, eats, and breathes the uh, like security aspects of the space to be worrying about that. Um, they're you know they're willing to pay for that service because that gives them more peace of mind than them taking on the responsibility uh, to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And so you know, that's what I am actively fighting against. Uh, I'm kind of fighting against the tide of convenience. You know, as you mentioned at the very beginning, a lot of this is trade-offs between convenience and security. And so I think that at a macro level, if we want Bitcoin to go in the direction where most people are taking advantage of the self-sovereignty aspects that are available, then we need to continue to push the convenience forward so that you know it's easier and easier for people to feel confident that they can manage their own keys. Uh, that means we need to continue to improve user interfaces. We need to continue to, to learn from users like what aspects of key management are scary, which aspects are foot guns, you know, how are people screwing up. Every time somebody screws up uh, Bitcoin custody, we need to learn from it and improve our knowledge, our collective you know, consciousness, and improve our, um, our technology of like, how do we even let people you know, interact with Bitcoin. So, um, you know, there's, there's also, I think, an argument to be made that the real power, the real value here is optionality. It's not that we should force people to uh, hold their own keys. It's that the option should always be available because that gives you some you know, flexibility against systemic risk in that like if the if the system starts collapsing then at least hopefully some people will be able to to get out into self-custody um but you know obviously it's better to be in self-custody in the first place so that you don't have to worry about uh, running to the exits if if something uh, starts to go down how how do you let's talk about casa for a second it's one of my just on a personal note one of my favorite companies in the space so if i am what are what are what's kind of the spectrum of security in the crypto space? Like on one end, you have store your coins on an exchange, then you have store it with a what like a BitGo or something like that, and then there's Ledger, and then there's Casa. Like what's the spectrum for folks who might not be as familiar with security? Yeah, I mean it is a very large spectrum because there's uh, uh, sort of I guess you would say almost like polymorphic number of combinations of different things you could mix and match uh, for the security. Uh, so, you know, worst case scenario is 
you don't even own your own Bitcoin. You know, some other third party has the actual private keys and all you really have is an IOU and you can request that your Bitcoin gets transferred somewhere. This, is, this is like a Robinhood or something like that. Not even Robinhood because they don't even let you withdraw, right? So I guess that would almost be that's even the worst. worst. But then, you know, yeah. like a like a Coinbase or exchange or, or whatever. So then you get into uh, self-custody. The worst type of self-custody is what's called a hot wallet. Uh, So uh, basically you're using a piece of software that's running on a general purpose computing device, whether it's your laptop or your phone or whatever. And the, the actual private key is also on that device, which means that you have a, sensitive private material that is technically connected to the internet. So that means if if somehow an attacker manages to walk through one of the front doors on your device and exploit something in any number of ways, then they could take that key and steal all your money. You have no recourse. Uh, next step after that is taking your keys and putting them on a dedicated air gaps device. This is where Trezor, Ledger, Cold Card, so on and so forth come into play. This effectively protects you against most hacks. Uh, you know, there's we've still seen some hacks in uh, actual like software uh, wallets, like MetaMask extension or whatever, where users. Uh, even though they had their keys on a ledger, they were still tricked into sending it somewhere else. But that could get, that could send to other complexities of like Ethereum and all of that stuff. So you're, you're like 99%, I would say, protected against hackers if you're using a dedicated hardware device because it's doing independent verifications on uh, non-internet connected hardware. Um, after that is when you start getting into multi-sig and you actually, instead of having one key on one device, you start having multiple keys on multiple devices. And now even if one key gets lost, stolen, whatever, then you're fine. You can use the other keys to, uh, to spend your money. And, and this is the level that Casa is operating at where we're, we're, making it easy for you to get into a setup that is very diversified using uh, multiple different types of devices to store keys. You're storing them in uh, different geographic locations, which gives you more robustness against loss from any number of different things. And it's actually a fairly complex threat model. We've got like 30 pages of uh, threat model uh, that are accessible on our website for you to understand like all the technical decisions that went into this. Um, And so while it's, you know, it's a lot of technical decisions that went into the architecture, we we slap a really nice user interface that, that guides people through the process. So this is really what we're trying to do is take a decade of hard lessons that were learned through all types of different loss and build software that essentially acts as like a guide rail for people to follow the best practices without having to be um, you know, a crazy obsessed Bitcoin nerd who spends all of their time reading about best practices and, and hacks and thefts and stuff. Hmm. I know several friends who, uh, close friends who use CASA and un- unfortunately they only started using CASA uh, once something, you know, once something mm. pretty bad happened to them, 
So just to make sure I understand how CASA works and to make sure everyone understands how CASA works, let me try to repeat it back to you. So basically, you might need, in, in this lockbox analogy, you might need three keys to unlock the lockbox. You're going to give the user, let's say, five keys. CASA holds onto a mm -hmm. key. You send a key to you know, a storage box held in a, held in a safe. I get a key and two other keys go out somewhere. If two of those keys get mm -hmm. lost, you're fine because you you still have the other three keys. No single key can, with if you only have one key, so say someone hacks me and gets one of my private keys, I can't unlock that lockbox. Is that a general understanding of it? Exactly, and we make it very easy to replace keys in the app. You know, if you if you have a device that gets lost or or you think it might have been compromised, it's very easy in our app to mark it as compromised and then go get a new device, uh, add that to your key set, and then basically perform a, a key rotation so that you're 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 kind of like rotating your funds out of that old key set and into the new key set. Are most of your customers individuals or are they, uh, is it more of a B2B sale? No, it's definitely individuals. That's, uh, you know, we, we originally in 2018, uh, we, we kind of took a Tesla model, uh, like starting premium and working our way down. So we started off really only targeting high net worth individual, like OG Bitcoiner types. And then, uh, over the years we've added a few other tiers with, uh, you know, less uh, white glove service, I think is the best way to describe it. So yeah, we've, we've, we've got a very simple uh, $10 a month type of tier, which is really a self-service setup. Uh, you bring your own hardware, plug it in, um, easy to get going, but only really offer email support. And then at our higher tiers, you'll get uh, more complex setups, but also these tend to you know require more hand holding and so you'll, you'll get higher levels of like phone and video call support uh, all the way up to our, our top tier which we have a specialized inheritance program which is really onerous to get set up because we actually onboard your estate attorney as a key holder wow. in your key set wow that's amazing um in terms of we're, we're going to start to wrap this up i have one question that's non-security related you've been in this space for a long time you clearly like the data side of things. Uh, most people in the space look at the exchange rate, right, of Bitcoin to US dollars, but exchange yeah. rate is just one pretty simple metric that we can observe. Actually, one of the less quality, in my opinion, metrics that we can use to observe the evolution of the space. What are some metrics that you pay attention to and what metrics right now excite you? Hmm. Well, I have an annual post that I do that goes through all of the metrics uh, that I pay attention to. It's basically my, my annual recap. There's probably a hundred different metrics in there. Um, and of course, my first ever project was a fork of Bitcoin Core called Statoshi, uh, which is a it's just metrics of Bitcoin nodes. And uh, anyone who goes to statoshi.info can see some... Uh, eye candy charts of what my Bitcoin node is doing right now. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm tracking things like sustainability. Um, one thing that's been coming up more recently is, uh, you know, how does the Bitcoin network continue to pay for its thermodynamic stability as the block reward keeps going down? You know, we, we like to see 
transaction fees uh, continue to offset the decreasing subsidy. But you know, this is there's just a lot of aspects of Bitcoin that are not a hard and fast science of. Um, you know, from a thermodynamic security standpoint, Bitcoin wor could work at any level. You know, it'll automatically adjust to whatever amount of energy is put into it uh, by miners. So it's it's hard to say how much is enough. Uh, I did see one person on Twitter said it just needs to be higher than the energy output from the biggest nation state. And that's that should be enough to be safe, which I thought was an interesting yeah. point. But um uh, I mean, I also like to look at adoption of of like Lightning Network. Uh, you know, see you know what are the number of nodes and you know, amount of Bitcoin that we can tell is locked up in there. You know, it's it's not all even publicly available, so some of these things are fairly rough estimates. Uh, seeing seeing things like adoption of various aspects of Bitcoin, like Segwit, which it looks like has been adopted by almost everyone, except for blockchain.com uh and uh yeah just like continuing to see how the uh network moves forward and evolves you know I'm, i also do annual tests of um, bitcoin node performance and it's interesting to me because i'm often surprised year after year where i expect the sync time from genesis to blockchain tip for a fully validating node to increase because of course we're adding like another 50 gigabytes or so of data that need to be downloaded and verified. Uh, and actually uh, with a number of node implementations, it actually keeps going down year over year because of the various optimizations that they uh, keep making at very low levels. Mm. So um, yeah, there's no there's no one thing, but I would say that like price is the least interesting to me. I believe that price is only interesting as a sort of lagging indicator for how ignorant the world is about Bitcoin. <laughs> well said, well said. Um, this was an audience question uh, that at Gorilla V2 asked on Twitter: When will you be able to run your own node with your multi-sig setup? So when will yeah. Well, in terms of Casa, connecting to your own node from the Casa app has been something people have asked about us uh, for a while. Um, if we if we did end up doing that, it would probably only be against an Electrum node because we spent a lot of time actually swapping out our infrastructure. Last year, we wrote a whole post about that about Electrum performance. So we're already using Electrum on the back end uh, at Casa. Um, but there is kind of a workaround for it. And we have some blog posts and knowledge articles about how um, part of the process for CASA is us proving to the user that CASA as a company is not a single point of failure. And that includes CASA itself. So part of getting set up with a multi-sig wallet in CASA is actually us providing you with instructions and data for how to recover your funds using other software that supports the same standards as CASA and these very common multi-sig standards. And as a result, you can go recreate your wallet in Electrum or in Spectre Desktop. We have specific instructions for both of those. The nice thing about Spectre Desktop, which I just wrote a blog post about, uh, I think a month or so ago, 
is that Spectre Desktop actually requires you to be running uh, your own node and it connects to that. So um, what you can do is you can essentially recreate your Casa wallet as a watch-only Spectre wallet and ensure that any of the data that is appearing in Casa is actually being fully validated by you and your full node. And this, uh, this helps keep Casa honest as well. It protects against other edge case things, like if, if you suspected that Casa might be screwing with the multi-sig and like changing the keys in there, then um, the neat thing about the way that Bitcoin addresses work is that they're based on a hash of the redeem script. The redeem script is essentially the Bitcoin language that describes all of the conditions for what is required to spend that Bitcoin. And since the Bitcoin address is a hash of all of that, if you change a single byte of any of those spending conditions, it results in a completely different Bitcoin address. So by, by you know, cross-checking the Bitcoin addresses in your, your own watch-only wallet versus what Casa is telling you, you can actually independently validate and ensure that we are not screwing around with uh, any of the aspects of your Bitcoin hodl. Very interesting. We're going to wrap it up with uh, two questions here, and then you can, uh, if you'd like to, uh, you can ask me one question to finish this. But my first question is just, we talked a lot about security and privacy and financial sovereignty and custody. Uh, we didn't talk that much about just you as a founder and building Casa, and uh, it's not easy to build a company, right? It's pretty damn tough. What is the biggest challenge that you're going through as an entrepreneur and as a founder right now? Um, well, right now is actually a good time because it's a bull market. Um, this is my second cycle, my second Bitcoin cycle, you know, working full time in the space. And interestingly enough, I actually joined BitGo right at the beginning of the, the last bull cycle, like early 2015, you know, after, after the, the Gox crashed, basically bottomed out. And so it was like, it was a good two years of bear market, um, uh, slow going during that time until the, the scaling wars really heated up. And then um, I started Casa right after the last crash, it was early 2018. Um, and so you know, had two and a half, almost three years of, of bear market with Casa. And it was, uh, it was slow going because really the only people who are around in a bear market are the hardcore uh, believers, usually who have been in it for a while. So, you know, it's, it's hard to grow um, because the ecosystem at a macro level is not growing. You're, you're, you're kind of searching for scraps. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why we, we tried diversifying from the multi-sig to also having the node product uh, to try to, you know, increase our, our like total self-sovereignty package and pull in more Bitcoiners. Uh, you know, that ended up not working for a multitude of reasons, including the fact that just the total addressable market size for node owners is actually far smaller than for self-custody. Um, and, you know, I would say like one of the hardest things that we had to do was actually cut that uh, product. Um, it, it upset a lot of people. It upset us, you know, it upset having to let team members go who had been working on it. Um, but you know, ultimately it, 
it was the right decision and we came out the other side doing well. Um, you know, there are multiple other companies in the space who also had to cut node products. You know, this was, I think, not a unique one-off thing, um, but just more indicative of, you know, trying to sell uh, nodes in general. Um, fundraising, this is the first time I ever did anything with fundraising, and that is totally not my jam. Um, if I never have to fundraise again, it'll be too soon. I'm a technical guy. I want to be reading, writing, reviewing code, um, you know, doing the occasional shit post on Twitter, but you know, talking to venture capitalists and trying to convince them that, you know, like, my business is the best business uh, is definitely not uh, the way that I roll because I'm, I'm more of the fuck you, I'm building something because it's cool uh, rather than, uh, you know, this is going to be a billion dollar company. Um, you know, the, the reason that I actually switched from Bitco to Casa. Well, one of the reasons, but I would say one of the primary reasons was that despite me being a Bitcoin security expert uh, with years of experience, I found myself spending an entire weekend every year refreshing my cold storage. And I was like, well, if it's this painful for me, I can only imagine you know, other people and most people are just not going to want to go through all this trouble. So it was less of me being like, oh, this is a business opportunity right here. It was more of this is a requirement if we want Bitcoin to go mainstream. We need to build products that make normal people feel comfortable doing secure Bitcoin operations. Hmm. So, so for me, it was more of an investment in Bitcoin, the system as a high level of like, what is the next greatest impact and contribution that I can have to the system because I'm not a cryptographer. I'm not even a protocol developer. I have like a few minor trivial commits to Bitcoin core, mostly as a result of my Satoshi fork and just things that I ran into, but that's just not my thing. I'm, I'm a like application infrastructure uh, type of engineer. And um, I think that the, you know, the, the most leverage that I can apply will be making contributions at that level. What was your least favorite meeting with a, uh, with a VC? Um, well, you know, there were a few of them, you know, we talked to a bunch of crypto VCs. We also talked to a bunch of regular VCs. I mean, the, the worst ones, there were a couple where they were obviously just like, uh, Bitcoin skeptics. And I'm like, you know, what the fuck am I even doing here? I was like, you're not, you're not I don't here even to, want to, your... to uh, convince me about Bitcoin. So, yeah, I mean, it's like, I'm supposed to convince you not only that my business is good, but ultimately I have to convince you that Bitcoin is also going to be an amazing thing. It's like, I'm not up for that. Um, if you don't believe in the mission that I am trying to follow, then I don't need your money. Like I, I want someone who is willing not just to give me money, but also to support the business in a variety of other ways. And that means you need to believe in the business. Yeah. What is, um, last question here, just be, what is something that folks don't know about Jameson or that folks don't know about Casa that you'd feel comfortable sharing? Well, I mean, I, I still think the biggest misconception is that like Casa is, well, a lot of people still think Casa is a node company or that we started out as a node company. Uh, we actually started with multi-sig. Um, 
probably at, at an even higher level, the bigger misconception is that uh, Casa is a Bitcoin company. Um, and it's not that we support anything other than Bitcoin or even that we plan on adding support for anything else in the near term. But rather, Casa's mission is to be a personal sovereignty company. You know, that was the mission that drove us to go down the route of, of adding the node um, a couple of years ago. But what this means is that whenever there is a way for us to help people use cryptography and technology and private keys, really anything that people can use to, to leverage their own sovereignty that we can, as technologists and as you know, like customer client services uh, can help them you know, navigate. Um, if that will empower our users and we can provide like a better user experience than the cur current level of tooling around whatever these technologies are and we can package those all together um, that is what casa is going to do amazing love that um take it or leave it we can wrap this up with one question for me if you'd like Uh, well, kind of going back to your, uh, own personal incident, are you ready to burn it all down and what are you willing to commit? I am, I am not ready to burn it all down. I'll be honest with you. I, I tried burning it all down actually. And, um, I, did, I didn't try burning it all down. That's, that's not an honest thing. I, I tried really going towards your end of the spectrum and then I took a trip to Portugal and mm. I was trying to navigate Portugal. I was refusing to use Google Maps and I was trying to navigate Lisbon, Portugal with this like printed out map. And I got so <laughs> frustrated. I was in these weaving in and out little roads and- um, Even the I, GPS devices in that type of setup can be wonky. They are, yeah. But what's really wonky is these printed out maps from the 1990s. And I just said, you know what? This is literally, I'm living right now the trade-off but, but, you know, between convenience and privacy. And I, I wanted privacy, but in this moment, it's hot as hell and I'm lost and I want convenience. And, uh, and, I, and I slipped up, I'll admit it. And um, hmm. that was kind of a setback. I will say that um, I really encourage people to go beyond just i think the obvious one is kind of just 2fa turn on 2fa for like security but there's so many layers that they can go beyond that and it's what you said at the very beginning of this conversation which is just spending i think you said like an ounce for a pound or whatever it is really just spend a, spend a weekend doing this stuff and your security and your privacy can increase by 95 percent Right, that extra five percent is gonna could take months or weeks and a lot of money to get to, but just spend two days to just reassess your privacy and your security, and it, it'll go a really long way. So yeah, um, it doesn't have to be full bore, one hundred percent going off into the mountains at once. Right? Is that privacy can be an incremental thing, security can be an incremental thing. I mean, it's. It's just kind of like personal fitness as well. It's like you don't have to go to the gym and start benching 400 pounds. You can start slow and work your way up. Exactly, exactly. Jameson, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Um, everybody can check out CASA. Um, you're obviously on, on Twitter at 
L-O-P-P at LOP. Folks should also check out LOP.net, L-O-P-P.net. Um, anything else you want to share with the audience? No, uh, that's enough to keep people busy. I would say there's at least like six months worth of educational resources on my website if you're looking to go further down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Totally. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks, Jameson. Thank you. That was Jameson Lop. Uh, unbelievable episode. Head over to lop.net if you want to learn more about him. He's also at lop on Twitter. As always, go to our website, blockworks.co forward slash newsletter. Subscribe to the newsletter if you enjoy this type of content. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, or really wherever else you get your podcasts. Um, I think we're at, I don't know, 40 or 50 reviews so far. We need to get to 100 reviews, and Apple told me they'll uh, consider putting us on the homepage of Apple. So yeah, head on over to Apple, give us a five-star review, and uh, yeah, we'll see you next week for another episode of Empire.